Good morning. Is Christianity a religion or a relationship? I ask because that's the kind of false dichotomy that really frustrates me. Christianity is about worship. It's about worshiping the God who has taught us how to worship him. That, that's religion. It's also amazing because that God who has called us to worship him has made himself known to us and knows us. We miss everything if we lose either part of this. The one holy and awesome God is to be worshipped with right reverence. And he is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who has come down to us so that we might experience his love. Jesus is going to warn us about a false religion. Here, there, the words, beware. Jesus is going to teach us what he really values, a right religion, by pointing out the widow's actions. If you think about religion, it's clear Christianity is a religion because James tells us what it means to have a true and undefiled religion. It's to care for widows and orphans. Why is that specifically true and undefiled religion? I believe it's captured in the word give. True religion is giving ourselves over to the one who has given us everything. As we read before and meditated upon for the offering, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He gives us all, and to all him we owe. We have to, 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 to fully embrace. He has given us all so that we would have a real relationship with him and therefore know how to practice real, true religion. Our text this morning is shorter than normal. We're going to see in verses 45 to 47 of chapter 20 a warning uh, against false religion, a false religion that masquerades and takes. If we're to summarize 45 to 47, it's beware of the false religion, and that how you recognize a false religion is it masquerades and it takes. And then we're going to see Jesus highlight the actions of the widow in true religion that trusts and gives Trust and gives. Let's look at our text. Notice there in 45, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware. Beware. Uh, There's numerous themes in Scripture that we we might not appreciate how often they come up unless we're reading Scripture just to look for them. One of those themes is the, the regularity we would see, God warning us of false teaching. We have to understand every, almost every letter we have in the New Testament is written to confront some kind of false teaching. It was prevalent in the early church. If you want to look at what this really looks like, the pastoral letters are focused specifically on the need for sound doctrine that would build up the church and correct false teaching. We could go back to Ezekiel 34, which is an incredible picture, where God is saying, I'm going to judge those priests who are taking what's meant to be offerings for God and using for their own consumption, using for their own glory. God says, I'm going to judge those priests. I'm going to judge those shepherds. And then he says, I myself will be your shepherd. I myself will mend your wounds. I myself will gather you. 
And oh, friend, don't miss it. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd in John 10, he is saying he is that good king who comes to care for his people. Beware. Last week, if you were with us in verses 41 to 44, we we saw Jesus confronting the scribes uh, specifically, directly to them regarding uh, how their teaching is void. They, they, They don't understand that the Messiah isn't just the son of David. He The Messiah is the son of God. The the Messiah is David's own Lord. He's not just a human descendant of David. He's the great God who's going to come down to save us. Now he's going to warn the disciples. Now he's he's speaking directly to the disciples. Now he's, he's turned his direction about the ungodly and unacceptable practices that are the scribes. Here Jesus is warning the disciples to recognize you're not going to be like these guys. You're, you're, you're going to be concerned about these guys. Uh, if you're new with us, we're walking through the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has been in the temple. This is his last trip to Jerusalem. He has turned his face there uh, back in chapter 9, verse 51. The triumphal entry has happened. He's wept over Jerusalem. He's gone to the temple. And what's happened before this is really interesting. It's kind of a take your ticket at the door to, to get whooped. Right, So the Sadducees, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they're all coming in to try to dupe Jesus. The, the, Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the, the chief priests, the scribes, they're all trying to figure out how they can destroy Jesus with some kind of deception. And what a picture of our foolishness. We're going to overcome God in his temple? And verse 40 is so important. After the last group comes in to, to, to try to trick him, verse 40 No one dared ask any more questions. And here we see Jesus has turned the tables. He's asked the scribes a very important question with the uh, Savior, the Messiah. And now he's warning the disciples. He says, beware of the scribes. He's pinpointing a significant theological problem. They think too little of God. They, they, they think too little of their problem of sin. They, they think too highly of themselves. Beware. Watch out. Keep a distance. Now, if we look at this, he's going to just describe behavior. If we just look at the behavior described in verse 46, beware of the scribes. And this is what you're looking for. This is the kind of behavior you're wanting to be cautious about, be on guard against. They walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. So they walk around wanting attention. They, they love the greetings. They love the attention in the public spaces, and they want the best seats. Okay, let's kind of have a, a rubric for how we're going to let this passage wash over us. First, disciples of Jesus, he is speaking to us directly. We need to be aware of people like this. There, there, there is, there's always going to be an attack from Satan who's on the prowl, who, who wants to send in false teachers. We, we need to be aware that false teachers will come into a church. It's almost promised. We need to be constantly aware that Satan is prowling. So, so, so watch out for this kind of false disciple or false teacher. Okay, so second way. There's something very important in the way this should hit home for pastors and leaders. Me, Brian, Javier, Daniel, 
there's a way in which this this should be specifically uh, a heavy warning for us as we uh, look at ourselves, as we want to be held accountable by by you, the church. There's a reality. There's many who twist what God gives and uses for their own sake. There's a way in which uh, those who are in authority can abuse that authority. And too many Christians have suffered because of that. And so we want to think about that. Third, what he's warning of reflects sinful desires we all have. Right? There's sin that's going to come from out there. That There's going to be some kind of false teacher who wants to come in and stir up division. Right? There's leaders that we need to be aware that we don't act like these guys. And then all of us have all of these sins within our heart. And there's going to be opportunity for repentance. Okay, so it begins with the problem. They like to walk around in long robes. So many questions that I have not had any good answers for this week. How fancy were these robes? How long did they need to be before they were sinful? Was there a train? Were these robes isolated so that only religious leaders got to have them? What does this really look like? The picture seems pretty obvious. They dressed up in such a way that they would draw attention to themselves. Okay, so culturally, what would be the equivalent today? We could quickly ask, why in the world would any religious organization named under Christ insist upon having certain kinds of special robes for their priests or rectors or whoever that may be? We could ask that question. We should also ask, we as Baptists, we may not have robes, but there is a formality that we could impose that might be like this. Now, this might surprise you, but I find the idea of wearing a robe attractive. <laughs> but a special robe, a black, simple robe tied to the Protestant Reformation. And the whole idea of wearing that black robe was to make it clear that the person speaking needs to disappear, and it's the word of God that goes out in power. That, 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 that idea of the robe is actually meant to take away from the person so that the word of God is clear. But I want to be very clear. I merely like the idea of the robe. It sounds really hot. <laughs> All right, to continue to give my own personal reflection on the passage, this is one of those passages I come across and I feel kind of self-righteous. and like, yeah, I don't have that problem. I in no way have ever been tempted to dress up fancy so people would look at me. Those of you who know me, I actually probably have the opposite problem. I don't want to dress up at all. Hey. There was all kinds of responses I was expecting, but not that one. Um, To be clear, uh, this sin, as I must believe, resides somewhere in my heart, but it's very dormant. Uh, we, we all have some sin issues. I, I have got my issues, but it's, it's more of a desire for comfort, not this. The focus here is they like to be seen. They, 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 they want honor. And that should sound true to us. Here's the real problem. They want honor without being honorable. They, they want respect without being truly respectable. They put on a garment that hides the emptiness of who they really are so that they would be seen and honored because of how they present themselves rather than having the kind of character that would carry dignity with it. 
Titus 2 tells us older men should be dignified. There's a way in which we should all be looking to grow up with the, uh, the characteristics of a disciple, of godliness, that others would look up to you, not because of your outward expression, not because of how you're masquerading. This is all a lie that's covering their emptiness. Now, there's a right way in which honor is meant to be given to those who have character. They're a facade. Next, they love greetings in the marketplace. Okay, we, we actually want to put this next to it. One of the qualifications of an elder is that they love the stranger. They're hospitable. We want to put these two side by side, I think, to, to help us understand. The, the, the scribes that we're to be aware of and warned of, they like to go out and they like to receive a greeting from everyone. They, they want to be seen as important when they go out. But notice the hospitality that's required of an elder. It's they like to receive somebody in their own home. You see, the scribes, they're trying to go out in the public to take. The, the, the elder, they're wanting to receive people into their home to, to give. What Jesus is observing of the scribes, they desire to approach others in order to receive from them. They're takers, not givers. The concern is they are unusually selfish when they are in the position to represent him who is abundantly generous. They're unusually selfish when they're in the position to represent him who is abundantly generous. They come in, they posture themselves as God's representatives, and they're distant. They want reward. They want to take. That's not God at all. He's near. He gives. He receives. Leaders, this is a high calling of what it means to represent God. We act like him and we, we give. It's the picture of verse 46. Be on guard. The, their presentation is empty. They, they want the seats of honor. They, they, they want to just, they, they depend upon people for their own well-being rather than depending upon God and giving themselves over. Well, it, it gets a little more specific in verse 47. Notice there's two other practices. The, the, verse 46, I think, captures they, they want to present themselves in their emptiness so they still receive honor that's undeserving. But here we see two other practices. They devour widows' houses. The word devour there means cheat. It assumes that the idea they're cheating and for a pretense make long prayers. They cheat widows and they cheat God. We could see pretty basic the the problem here they don't love their neighbor as themselves they don't love god if we're to put the the idea of love your neighbor as yourself the the second as jesus gives it in in terms of the order of the command that summarizes all the commands it's actually the the most extreme example the widow is the most vulnerable loving the widow would be protecting her Loving the widow would be giving to her. Loving the widow would be coming around her and and caring for her. But they're doing the opposite. They're intentionally going against her to, to take from her. She who is most vulnerable is taken advantage of. We see no love of neighbor. Then we see the other concern. They pray with pretense. There's a pride. They, they like to give long prayers so that people would hear them and think how reverent, how, how spiritual. They, 
they're praying for the sake of gaining attention of men. Now, let's just be very clear. There's nothing more spiritual about short prayers based upon this passage. There's there's, there's warnings about praying over and over again, repetition, for the purpose of having other people think, wow, what a spiritual person. The length of the prayer isn't the real problem. It's why they're doing it. The problem is focused on their desire for that others would want to hear them and think much of them. Just to be clear, I'm afraid our churches and our culture probably have the opposite problem of not praying long enough. We're too busy. Let's make that short. Let's not properly lead the church to trust God with a prayer that walks through the the numerous aspects. We have a whole book of prayers. There's 150 in the middle of your Bible. The, the, The length of the prayer isn't the problem. It's the posture. It's the purpose. And now this last line. Beware of the scribes. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, let's just think about this for a moment. Everything we've seen about these scribes is they're they're taking from others. They're intentionally receiving honor that's undue to them. They're intentionally receiving uh, money and wealth from a widow that's undue to them. They're intentionally receiving glory instead of giving glory to God in their prayers. And notice the, 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 the grand irony of the end. They're going to receive something in the end. A greater condemnation. The, the disciples are told those who are promoting a false religion, those especially who are in a position to teach who God is. They they had the unique opportunity. They had the unique blessing of standing in the place of those representing God to God's people. They're going to receive a greater condemnation. Now, we can see the principle of this in James 3.1, where where, where James says those who are teachers are going to have a, a greater scrutiny. There is a greater judgment but it leads to a lot of questions. Are there layers in hell? Is there more punishment? Are there more severe punishment? Are there less punishment? We can ask these questions. It clearly is making it obvious that there is going to be a greater severe punishment for those who are misrepresenting God in this way. But that's not really the main question I want you to think about is, am I going to have a little punishment or a lot of punishment? No, you want to avoid hell and condemnation altogether. There's only one way to do that. Everyone is deserving of condemnation. And the only way we escape that condemnation, the only way we're delivered out of that condemnation is if we believe in Jesus Christ, who died for our sin. Let's think about this warning. One, it's, 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 it's telling the disciples, do not participate in this wickedness. Do not follow these men. Don't be like these men. You're going to have to be a whole different kind of disciple because these guys, if these guys are your model, you're going to get it wrong again. The whole goal of the church is to grow up like Christ so that they need to understand you're not going to be takers like these men. You're going to be givers like Jesus Christ. We could meditate upon Philippians 2 as to what that really looks like. Consider others more important than yourselves. Consider others' interests more important than your own. Why? Because you're supposed to have the mind of Christ who, 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 who left the glories of heaven, who came down to be like us, who died for us, 
as a human uh, dying uh, for an equal, as God dying for someone he created. This is supposed to what, be what marks disciples. There's a way in which this condemnation is meant to be encouraging to the church. And if you want to know what that looks like, read Jude and Second Peter. There's a way in which the church has to be encouraged that false teachers will receive the just judgment from God. And that should terrify us. Because if you're in any kind of role of leadership, I'm going to specifically state husbands, fathers, teachers, pastors. God has given you a great responsibility. And it's one to be handled with reverence towards God. It's one to be seen as a great responsibility for someone else. Third, I want to hold out here that the scribes might hear this and repent. Titus 1. When Paul tells Titus, rebuke the false teachers sharply. Why? So that they may be sound in the faith. This is how good God is. The only thing that keeps you from being forgiven is not confessing your sin and asking Jesus to forgive you. Even these men could be saved because there's, there's only one who can save them, and it's, it's Jesus. They'll face a greater condemnation if they never repent of their sin. But that's the beauty of the gospel. They could repent of their sin. As we look at this text, we see our own sin. We're selfish. We're honor thieves. There's ways in which we dishonor others. There's ways in which we do not show proper honor, just like these scribes. We see our own sin. We can be harmful. We can be dignity thieves. We can, we can take what doesn't belong to us. Then there's a religious sin. They're glory thieves. They do not honor God with their prayers. The most important thing we understand from this text, Christ died for sinners. Like that. Because Christ died for us. We need to be able to let the word teach us. Illuminate our, our minds so that we could see these sins. So we could take them to Christ. And, 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 and be brought out of that sin. As we think about this, there's, there's really two different ways we can live. One is the consumer. And this is the way we are by, by, by nature default as American citizens. We're consumers. I do what I want to do, I take, I receive. I'm an independent shopper, and, and I, I go to be satisfied. If I don't feel like it, I won't keep my word. If it's not convenient, I'll choose to do something else. That, that's the mindset of the scrub. The mindset I want to present for you is to think of yourself not as a consumer, but a citizen, because that's who God says you are. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. A citizen says, I, I do what is expected of me. I give. I'm dependable. I'm a covenant member of a community, my, my family, my church. I'm united by the blood of Christ with others. We're called to be citizens, not merely consumers. I'm going to put a caveat on that, though. There's a season where all of us have to come to the church and actually just receive healing care. There's a way as citizens, there's seasons where we come and the church functions like a hospital. Where, where, where you have a difficult time knowing how you can pour out to anybody because you're, you're, you're empty, you're hurting. Friend, brother, sister, there, 
There's seasons like that. that. That's never supposed to be anyone's default constant mode. But, but, but praise God, the church can be a place where you can have the word wash over you and healing and care. But the church is mostly regularly functioning like a training ground. Leaders, let's take this call with all the weight that it has, that if we have some opportunity, whether whatever your leadership may be, teaching Sunday school, caring for others, it is a weighty responsibility to stand before others to teach God. The second story. There's a, there's a bit of a, a break, not just in chapter. You can actually ignore the chapter breaks for the most part in your Bible, but here we are, chapter 21, verse 1. There, there's a change. And notice it, it goes from Jesus saying everything about the scribes there and the hearing of all the people to the disciples. Now it's about Jesus looking. And our second point, practice true religion. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Luke has connected these two stories as back-to-back. There, there is a bit of a break, and we, we see here just classic Luke. If you're new with us, there's two things that are constantly co- contrasted in Luke. It's the rich and the poor. The rich and poor are, are, are constantly uh, put next to each other, the, the strong and the vulnerable. Notice he's still in the temple. He's observing the offering box. He's, he's seeing this. This is a Lucan word. He, over and over again, each, each gospel writer has like their own little words that they use regularly. You know, for, for uh, Mark, it's immediately. For Luke, he loves sight language. So if you want to read Luke and Acts, notice all the sight language. Here, Jesus sees all the rich giving. And then he focuses on just one. He saw a poor widow put in two copper coins. Okay, let's just wrestle with what that means. Uh, it's a leptin, what the lady gives. It's, it's, it's two uh, leptins. Uh, well, what is that? Well, that, that's the smallest denomination of money. That's why we call this a, a mite. It's the smallest. Uh, one leptin is one one-hundred-and-twenty-eighths of a denarius. Denarius is a day's wage. So she's giving two sixty-fourths of a day wage. Let's just go ahead and round this out. A penny to a dollar. You with me? Math is not my strong suit. A penny to a dollar. Okay, so we we, we have to, to, to notice here there's a transition. He notices the woman basically giving a, a penny... And, and, and the, 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 the rich people, we don't know much they're giving. It's at least a dollar, most likely. But, 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 but in terms of the, 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 the extreme difference, that, that's, a, that's, that's significant. And then everything changes. Verse 3, he goes from seeing and he takes the opportunity. First four words. Truly, I tell you. When you read that, Buckle up. The word of God is speaking. The the light of the world is shining darkness in his own temple. God's son is coming to make known God's ways. Truly, I tell you, are we ready to listen? 
This is the whole point. This one statement is the point. He's going to explain more in verse 4, but this is it. This poor widow has put in more than all of them. That's meant to be startling, right? Again, Luke is always contrasting the, the weak with the strong, the, the rich with the poor. And, and we could kind of picture this. The, the rich people are coming, and whatever this offering is, you could see how much people are giving. The rich are feeling good about what they're giving, especially if you're the rich person that's right before or right after the, the widow, because you're, you're going to look at what she gave and think, wow, I gave a lot more. Jesus is calculating what she gives in a different way. Now, let's, let's try to think this is a math problem. And if you've been here at any time, anytime I try to do math, you just know you're going to still feel a little awkward. Like, is this, is this plane going to take off? We'll see. Which has more value, a dollar or a penny? A dollar. Right? So if we're doing greater than, less than, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to do the greater. The dollar is greater than the penny. Okay, let's ask another question. Which person gave more money? The person who gave the dollar or, or the widow? No, the, the dollar is still greater than the penny. Jesus, in his judgment, is, is making clear there's another way of counting value, worth, in verse 4. She gave more. That's startling. That, that's not the way we count. Why? How, how, what, what, what is your, your, your uh, equation to come up with more? Here it is. They contributed out of their abundance. She, out of her poverty, she put in all. He, he's making a judgment on the criteria. We don't just look at the value. We certainly are supposed to look at the value based upon what we think we're giving more than others. No, Jesus is giving us another way of considering how to evaluate, how to make a judgment on what is more. Giving from what you have. Now, at some level, only Jesus has this information. Jesus is giving us a new way to make a judgment, and this is important. The Word of God is speaking. It's an opportunity for us to recalculate what we value. It's not the final amount you give. It's not comparing yourself to somebody else and what you give. It's how much we give from what we have. The word that we're really meditating upon here is stewardship. Because we really don't own anything. God gives us all that we have and expects us to use it for his purposes. It's not how much we've gained, it's how much we give. It's how much we, we use for God's purposes. Everything about this another way. We could pretend there is no sheet like this that I know of. We could, we could make a list of, of all the different offerings that were taken up just about 30, 40 minutes ago. And we could look, all right, what are the different number accounts? Okay, we could see which ones are more. Or we could say, who, who, who gave more based upon those number accounts? She's saying, that's not the way I'm making a value judgment. That's not the way I'm evaluating who gave more. It's what you gave from what you have. This is significant. There's another way of making a value judgment that's not obvious to us. And let's just be very honest. 
it's important for us to talk about this because anytime you talk about money with Americans, we get a little squeamish. It gets uncomfortable. And I believe that's because money is oftentimes tied to idolatry. Money's awkward. So this woman, she gave more. And the more is explained because she gives all. Now, let's clarify a point. In a previous story in Luke, Jesus commands a man to sell everything he has. And I explained that's not a universal command. Here, I actually want to say, I don't believe there's anything in the text that demands that everyone's supposed to give all they have. No, it's much more demanding than that. What Jesus is calling us to in this text is more demanding than simply emptying your bank account into an offering plate. Jesus is teaching us we should trust God who gives everything. And we should see that everything we have is meant to be used to love him. Our our, our giving is, is part of the way we can show what we reflect the most. Here, money is a measure. There's other measures. How do we use our time? If you want to know what you love the most, you can look at your bank account. Where does most of your money go to? Is it entertainment and self-love? Where does most of your time go? Is it entertainment and self-love? Or is it actually used for a purpose that's greater? There's ways in which we can measure. Let's back out a little bit. It is classic Luke to contrast the rich and the poor, but I don't think the rich are being corrected here. These two stories go side by side. She is the example of someone who loves God with all that she has, in contrast to the scribes who do not love God at all and merely take. She gave all while they take from everyone. She pours out while they proudly parade around. The concern is, what has God given you, and how are you using it for his glory? A passage we should all memorize. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. He, he, he gives us all, all of our money, all of our time, all of our energy. Are, are we seeking to give to him who gives so generously to us in the same way? So should you sell all you have today or, or, or give it all away? Maybe. I, I think there's other texts we would want to wrestle with this. 1 Timothy 5 says, if you do not care for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. There's a way in which you're supposed to be working to earn, to, to care for those in your family that God has given you. We, we've we got we to wrestle with that text with this. Ephesians says, work, don't steal, work, so you have something to give. All the texts show that whatever we have, we're meant to be using it for the clear purpose of the responsibilities God has given us. So Christian maybe a leader, there's a way in which we've got to be warned. How, how are we using what God has given us for our own pride like the scribe? How, how can we think about this widow and how can we take what God has given us and, and use all that we have in life to better glorify Him? If you're convicted and you're thinking, I, I, I want to give more, there's two opportunities this morning. Daniel Heiler, Heiler and Javier. Let me, let, me, let me just read from you a passage I was reading with some other brothers this week. Third John 8. 
Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers of the truth. Those who are coming through our town, Daniel and Javier, on their way to the mission work God has sent them out to do, there's a way in which this Sunday, after the service, you can come up to them because they're both in need of financial help to make sure they can continue to do the gospel work. And there's a way that you can give generously today. As we conclude, what kind of religion are you practicing? There's a way in which we all fall back into this consumerism that merely wants to take. There's an intentional way we've got to train ourselves. We're citizens. Citizens that have a great calling. Because God has called us and made himself known to us. God has brought us to himself and given us all that we could ever ask for. And how are we going to use it to better build up his kingdom, his church, seeking to help lead others up to be more Christ-like? Here's the real danger. If we're close-handed or seek to take, it shows a closed and selfish heart. A closed hand reveals a closed heart. An open hand and a cheerful giver shows an open, cheerful heart. Our, 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 the way we give our money, our time, the way we give honor and, and respect, it says more about us than those who we're giving these things to. Christian, here's the beauty of the Christ-centered life. He not only washes away our guilt and forgives us, he not only loves us and gives us a new relationship with him, he not only renews us and changes us, he gives us wisdom. He shines light into our darkness. He helps us realign our lives so that we can be content, we can be grateful, we can be generous. This is why we want to go through and understand the prayers. We praise God who's worthy of praise. Of praise. We thank him for all that he's given us. We confess our sins and then we ask God, show us how to best live this life for your glory. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, you are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. We thank you that we can know this about you because you've made it plain to us, not only in this creation where we can see your goodness and order, but, but in your word. Thank you. Thank you especially as Christians gathered here that we can see you are the generous giver. Lord, Lord let the, the passage in Romans 8 just, just, just stir within us. You've not withheld your own son. What, what good thing would you withhold from us? Lord, help us to, to overcome our grumbling, to, to, to constantly look to even the cross and see how grateful we must always be. Lord, pray for wisdom to know how to live in this dark and foolish, rebellious world. To represent you the good God who is generous. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's now stand and sing our song of response.
take my life and let it be.